What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light the lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Sometimes when we read a familiar passage like the one that Copeland has just read, it helps us to envision the audience to whom Jesus was speaking at the time. And surely as Jesus looked out over that mass of humanity, a lump must have swelled in his heart and probably tears welled in his eyes. Because before him was a multitude of people. And Jesus had said on another occasion that they were a great deal like sheep without a shepherd. They were directionless in their lives, and Jesus came to give them that spiritual direction. These people were were sinners of all stripes and colors. Luke 15 is in reality the gospel in miniature, and I I hope that we will approach it with that understanding in mind this morning. It's, It's really the story of God's amazing grace, and I appreciate so very much Sam leading that wonderful old song because it really is truth in terms of our relationship to God and the grace that he offers lost humanity. Maybe it helps to know that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, had a special awareness of what he had come to do and really who he was. He was very much aware of his divine identity, and he had also come to seek and save the lost. He makes that clear just four chapters later in Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. So here are people before the Lord that day who are really thirsting for grace and for hope. Jesus wished he could put his arm around every sinner, regardless of how and when and where that person had sinned. He wanted to tell each individually that heaven knows and that God cares and that there is, in fact, a way back to the Father's house. You see, Jesus came to reveal God and more specifically, God's amazing grace, the revelation that God will run. Let's talk for a moment, if we may, about the process of being lost. Because in teaching how God will run and forgive the sinner, Jesus had to first tell these people and us how it is that a person becomes spiritually lost in the first place. And the men that Jesus was speaking to here didn't really know what their problem was. And that rings familiar to us because we're living in a world that denies adamantly the problem. They don't know what the problem is, but they are seeking government or someone else to be able to fix the problem for them. Those people, though, that Jesus was talking to just knew that their situation was bleak and that they seemingly, there was no hope for the future. It kind of reminds me of a few years ago when a man put an advertisement, actually had to pay quite a bit of money to do this, in one of the large metropolitan newspapers of the land, in the classified section, he put this notice, lost, one world. And that's really what Jesus is helping us to understand and to appreciate here in Luke chapter 15. He's telling us how people become lost spiritually. And he tells us, in fact, not three parables, but really just one parable, with three windows of illustration. And I want us 
to consider those three together this morning. First, fact number one, Jesus shares with them and with us is that sheep have a tendency to stray. Most people, Jesus is implying and then outright stating, are like sheep. They're not born depraved. They're not born in sin. There is no total inherited depravity that we get from former generations. God didn't create demons. He created people. And it's foolish and it's biblically ungrounded to assume that there's more evil in man than good. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, you may remember in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it teaches that man was made in the very image of God. And while we know that God is spirit, John chapter 4, 24 teaches that that means that we're created in his image in some other way than physically. That doesn't mean that we physically look like God, but that we do share in some aspects of his nature. And so understanding that means that we are having been created in his image means that we are, we're born for good purposes and not for evil. God intended us to live so in such a way that we would be good people, that we would be righteous people, and that we would glorify him by the lives that we live. And Psalm 8 also verifies that we were created just a little lower than the angels. And I think it appropriate to understand that the word angels there literally can be translated as deity. And so even above the angels, there, there is man. We're created just below deity itself. And that being the case, Jesus is telling this audience here in Luke chapter 15 that a lot of people in this world are like sheep because sheep have a tendency to stray. Now, we may not understand the why behind it, why that they would ever make the decision to leave the security of the fold, but it is the case nonetheless. The sheep himself probably doesn't understand why he strays, perhaps being preoccupied with the eating of the grass, moving from place to place, from hill to hill, maybe even from pasture to pasture, he awakens ultimately to the reality that he's separated from the fold and he's lost. Sheep do not inherently dislike other sheep. They do not inherently despise the shepherd. They do not deliberately intend to get lost. But they stray and they become lost just the same. In a similar way, I think the world in which we live, and sadly perhaps even those who, some of those who were once in the church, have strayed and they've become lost. And that's why Jesus told us this wonderful parable so that we could appreciate the tendencies that we have, the way the inner workings of man is, and, and also to understand the way back to God, how that we can access the benefits of his amazing grace that we just sang about. Fact number two, a coin was lost. As Jesus looked out into this audience of sinful people that were begging for hope, he saw some of them that were lost through the carelessness of others. You see, a, a, a coin is lost by the fault of the hand, not the fault of the coin. And that doesn't mean that we're not accountable and responsible for our own standing before God. That's not what he's trying to teach us. But a coin, in other words, is especially subject to, to the external pressures that are exerted upon it. And, and Jesus saw that many that even listened to him on that occasion were, were blind, spiritually blind people who had been listening to others who were spiritually blind. And you remember the conclusion that they both fell into the ditch. That's where a lot of people were in the world and in the audience that Jesus was talking to that day. 
The tragedy is that people by their, their influence can, can harm those who are nearest and dearest to them. The unfaithful husband loses his wife. The negligent parents may lose their children or even the unconscientious Bible teacher may lose his students. Jesus saw that, that many of these people were lost through the carelessness of others. But the bottom line was they were still lost nevertheless. Fact number three, the son was willful in his lost condition. Most people, again, are like the sheep. They stray. Others are like the coin being misguided from the start. It seems almost as if they never had a a chance. But there's a great number of people who are involved in our story today who are just like the prodigal son. They're alienated from God, watch this, because of their own conscious decision. That young man left home because it was his idea. His rebellion was his own. His decision to go to the far country was the decision that was unilaterally made. He did not confer with his father about the wisdom of doing that before he left. Here is a conscious decision that he made. And there's a great lot of, uh, number of people like that, Jesus said, that, that we need to evaluate and help to find their way home. This young man, as you recall, toward the beginning of the story, had said to his father, give me what I want and, and give it to me now. He could not even wait for his father to die in order to get his share of the inheritance. He wanted to leave right then because he could not live. He would not live under, in his father's house and under his father's watchful eye any longer. And so we have to say in evaluating these three windows of illustration that he's not like the sheep. He didn't just stray and he certainly is not like the coin. He has had a chance and he has, we would assume been living under the proper guidance of of his father, but this young man is selfish. In fact, somebody has pointed out that his his greatest trouble was that he had eye trouble. He, He wants his own way regardless of the consequences to himself or to anyone else. And you'll notice that the letter I is in the word sin. It's in the word prideful. It's in the word willful. But thank God, it's also in the word forgiveness. You'll notice further that the father did not argue with his son when he made the announcement that he was going to take his portion of the inheritance and go to the far country and leave home. Perhaps to risk the, uh, the, the, the danger of being misunderstood, I'd like to suggest that when people threaten to quit the church, there's only one thing that faithful brethren can do and that's sadfully and prayerfully step aside. It has to be their decision. And if they decide to return, that's their decision as well. We can encourage and we can pray for. But each of us has free will. And the man this day had free will when he decided to leave home. Jesus was showing this audience how it was that people become lost in the first place. And I think that's an important lesson, don't you? We really won't place the proper emphasis upon how wonderful it is to be able to come home and be forgiven by loving father unless we understand something of the dynamics about how a person becomes lost in the first place. But listen carefully to this, regardless of how a person becomes lost, Jesus wanted them and us to know that we're still lost regardless. Jesus here is depicting in very vivid terms the absolute tragedy of being lost. 
The world today is, is living in what has been called the age of anxiety. Never has the world lived so insecure, insecurely and even frightened by the future prospects of life. We live under the shadow of a potential nuclear annihilation. We realize that there are world leaders that have their finger poised above the button that could send us into a nuclear war at any moment. We live, we live in an age where diseases brought about by sin have long ago reached epidemic proportions. And yet tragically, as man today recognizes that there is something desperately wrong, man has never denied the reality of sin as adamantly as he does today. Carl Menninger wrote a book in the early 70s that was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? That's a good question that our society and our world needs to be asking itself right now. We, we call it by other names. Men today call sin everything except what it is. Folks have their idiosyncrasies and their neuroses and their syndromes. Man has this and he has that. And we often give it token acknowledgement by saying, well, he's sick. That man has a disease. But Jesus wanted people to know that they were sick all right. But it was a sin sickness. A sickness that only the great physician could heal. And there's a difference. And Jesus wanted people to know how they became lost and how they had sinned. That they might know the real value of complete forgiveness and salvation. Now Jesus has quickly taught how men become lost. And he's talked some about the tragedy of being lost. And as he was teaching all of this, not just to get them depressed and despondent about their, about their condition, but that they might know who he was and what his purpose on earth was and the fact that God does offer to every lost person amazing grace. You know, a person doesn't really appreciate a doctor until they are really, really sick, right? I mean, if you've got a headache or a hangnail, you probably don't appreciate those in the medical profession very much. If you just had a heart attack or a stroke, you appreciate them a great deal. And that really is true in the spiritual dimension as well. And I know that because the Bible tells me so. Jesus knew people would not appreciate a loving father who forgives until they could first see the black hopelessness of sin. You know, when you think about it, the agony of Luke 15 is more on the owner than it is on the thing that was lost. Although lost, the sheep still belong to the shepherd. Although lost, the coin still belonged to the woman who searched for it. And although he was lost, the son still belonged to the father back at home. The shepherd had more anxiety about a lost sheep. You know, a sheep can bleat and cry, but only the owner knows the dangers and the pitfalls that can lie in the path of a lost sheep. The coin doesn't even know that it's lost because it's inanimate. But the Bible says the woman was frantic in her search as she swept the house looking for that one lost coin. The prodigal son cries in the hog pen. But his father is at home suffering a broken heart daily while his son is away. And so I think it's safe to say that Luke 15 is not so much the parable of the prodigal son. So much as it's the parable of the bereaved and compassionate father. Someone has said a father had two sons. And both of them, both of them broke his heart. And only parents can appreciate that. 
in the sense of knowing that no one can break your heart as children only can break them. One man has aptly said upon viewing and reading Luke chapter 15, God surely has to be the chief sufferer in the universe. I'm not ready to argue with that. It's imperative that we appreciate that God is the Father in this account, and I'm assuming that we all came into this study knowing that, but I wanted to state it for the record. Because if we do not understand that God is the Father of the prodigal in this passage, then it loses all of its meaning. And there is no real spiritual application. So, number one, we've got to be squared away on understanding that the loving, compassionate, receptive Father is, is our God who is in heaven. And it required a shepherd to seek for the lost sheep. It required a woman to sweep and to search for the lost coin. But the boy knew the way home. He left of his own accord. I think we've established that. And he has to return the same way that he left. And the father can but wait and pray and hope. This has been called the divine humility of God. The risk that God runs in allowing us to be free moral agents to be creatures of choice. Because there is one principle that permeates both Old and New Testament, and that is that God wants sons and not slaves. He created men and women. He did not create robots that are programmed to always respond exactly the way God... No, he has given us free will. And because he has given us free will and choice in our lives, every one of us has the opportunity, if we so desire, to leave the Father's house and to go into the far country of sin. Now, we can, we can remain at home by the Father's side, or we can journey to the far country. But the point that I want us to appreciate right here is that God wants us to return of our own free volition. Come back the way you left. It can't be anybody else's decision. It has to be yours. And all the Father can do is to suffer and cry and look and wait. I think there's another great lesson that parents should learn from this parable. And that is that the father allowed his son to fall completely into the hog pen. Now that's hard for me to say and hard for me to acknowledge, but it is reality nonetheless. Some call this the law of natural consequences. It's the Galatians 6-7 with skin on. You reap what you sow. And that's true in parent-child relationships. It's true in all relationships that we have as long as we're walking on this earth. The father knew about the far country. He knew where his son was going when he left home. He knew about hog pens. And, and, And I would speculate that he also knew where his son was and what he was doing. And he could have done like a lot of modern day parents. He could have gone to the far country of sin. He could have searched out his son. He could have bailed him out. And he could have said something along the lines of, no son of mine will ever be seen feeding hogs. In a moment of righteous indignation. He could have intervened in the process is what I'm saying. And the son would never have seen the natural and inevitable consequences of the lifestyle that he had chosen. But this father, thankfully, being God, is much wiser than that. And let me add this parenthetically. Parents, if your children have the attitude of the far country, let them fall. Because they will never learn what sin means 
until they're in the hog pen. And if we're always bailing them out and aborting the process, they will never learn the law of natural consequences. I'm saying it took a hog pen to save that son that day. And in that respect, we thank God for hog pens. And by that, I mean the circumstances in life that shake people up. That give them a, do- a dose of reality therapy and help them to see sin for all of its ugliness and for what it really is. Now the father knew that that son had to awaken to what he had done and he had to see the real picture of sin. And all the while he had to stand by and watch his son fall even into the depths of sin and despair. And that is the single hardest thing that a parent will ever do. But it must be done. The Bible record says that while feeding the hogs, the son came to himself. That is the defining moment in his life, is it not? That is the tipping point. Sometimes I'll watch clips of college coaches who are on Sunday afternoon evaluating the game on Saturday. And they are asked this question especially if their team was victorious. What was the turning point in that game? All the momentum was on the other side, came out for the second half. All of a sudden, you guys were doing something, playing ball above your heads. I'm suggesting, spiritually speaking, that the Bible, when it says this young man came to himself, that was the defining moment, the turning point in his life. And the son made a resolution. And the record also says that he makes, takes immediate action to make that re- resolution quickly become a reality. And that's, in essence, what repentance really is, isn't it? It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. And so I'm going to change my conduct because of what I have resolved up here. And the big question now is, will the father receive him home? Don't you imagine that he had to ask that question over and over again as he's walking all those miles back home? Will dad receive me? Will I be welcome at home anymore? Will I be able to put my posters back up on the wall? Will I put my name back on the family checkbook? Will he even acknowledge me as a son? And then he came to the conclusion, the Bible says, that he's not even going to ask those questions. Because he's already come to his own conclusions. I am no more worthy to be called your son. That was his opening speech. I am not worthy to any longer be called your son. Just make me as one of your hired servants. And the Bible says the father saw him while he was yet a long way off. Don't you love inspiration? Don't you love what the Holy Spirit has decided to include in scripture? He didn't have to say that. But it tells us that he saw him while he was yet a long way off. What does that imply? He was looking for him. And he'd been looking for him every day since he left. I can't believe that was accidental. I'm convinced that there was a path beaten to the highest hill on that man's farm that afforded the best vantage point. And the father anxiously scanned the distance each day for a glimpse of an approaching silhouette on the horizon. And the parent of a prodigal child today lives with only one hope. And that is that my son or my daughter will come home. The father's head is now grayed. His heart has been pierced through with many sorrows. And the Bible says that when he saw his son coming home that day, that he had compassion. I'm quoting scripture now. He had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You may not know it, but just as an historical aside, old men in those days simply didn't run in public. It was a violation of social protocol for a, a patriarch of a family to be seen running in public. But that father didn't worry about that at that moment. He swaddled his pride, violating all of those social rules. He breaks into a run and he embraces his son. Let me make one more suggestion before we leave this study. And the suggestion would be this. It took a father to recognize his son that day. When he left home, in all likelihood, especially if it had been in a a modern scenario, he, he would have left home in a new car with a brand new suit of clothes, Money jingling in his pocket, probably with a diamond ring on one of his pinky fingers. He he left home tall and straight and true. He had the whole world for the taking when he left home, when he made that decision that I'm no longer going to live in my father's house so that he can't tell me what to do anymore. But he returns home walking. And his feet are bruised and they're bleeding from all of those miles back home. He returns in rags, not in a new suit. His head is now dirty and his eyes are bloodshot. He has the face of an old man and not just that, but a man dissipated by sin. He stoops and he stinks like the hog pen that he just left. Yeah, I really believe it took a father to recognize his son that day. But quickly the father says, and we know this because the Bible text supplies this important information. What the father said was put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, put the best robe on him, kill the fatted calf, for this my son was lost and is found. He was dead and now he is alive. And they began to rejoice. The poet has said, the fatted calf, the shoes, the robe, the ring, all for me, unworthy son, but sweeter to me, the most wonderful thing. God ran to meet me. I saw God run. Yes, Jesus says that even while the prodigal is walking back home, God is pictured as one doing the running. As Jesus tells this story, we begin to see, I think, what is meant by the Bible term grace. Even though that word is not mentioned in the text, we still see it illustrated and portrayed on every verse. The son was not saved just because he walked back home. Although, practically and spiritually, he could not have been saved without coming back home. I'm sure his father continued to love him while his son was in the far country. But he would not have received the benefits of his father's mercy and grace until he came back home. We've got to connect those dots, folks, or else we will not see the spiritual application. He wasn't saved just because he recognized the foolishness of the far country and repented. That is, changed his mind and thus changed his life. He was saved because... Because God loved him as only a father can. And he opened his arms to him in love. Now that's grace. Grace is when someone does for you what you could never ever do for yourself. But still that son had to come home in order to realize the benefits of that grace. And God emphasized both by words and deeds one fundamental fact. That a relationship is restored. That God is still the father and the prodigal 
is still the sun. You know, the world is filled with people. The same kind of people that constituted that audience that Jesus was speaking to that day when he delivered this parable. Here's a story that illustrates that, that came from the early 20th century. You need to realize that this took place some some years ago, which explains some of the details. Back in the first half of the 20th century, there was a son, much like the prodigal in Luke 15, who disgraced his father's name and broke his mother's heart. The father became gray-headed in disgrace. The mother died prematurely in grief because of her son's chosen path in life. And as a result of decisions and poor choices that he made, that son wound up in Huntsville, Texas State Penitentiary. That jail became this young man's hog pen. And while he was there, he also came to himself and he changed and he reformed his life. And the guards began to notice the obvious change that was taking place, not only in his actions, but also in his attitude. And they reported that to the warden. The warden then, in turn, reported it to the governor and to the board of pardons. And so, after several years of incarceration in in that prison, the son was finally pardoned and he was released. The mustering out pay was given to the young man, as they did in those days, and he used it to buy a train ticket to the far side of Texas, specifically to his hometown. And he also bought himself another suit of clothes. And he went to the telegraph station, and he sent a wire to his father back at home, and the wire said this, Dad, I know I've killed mother with grief. I've broken your heart, and I've disgraced our family name. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I want you to know that I've changed. And the governor has pardoned me, and I really want to come home. And I bought a train ticket that will carry me through the old hometown. And, Dad, if you'll forgive me and take me back, please tie a white rag in the old apple tree down by the railroad track. But if you cannot, I'll surely understand, and I'll just pass through town, and I will never bother you again. You can see the anticipation growing as the sun boards the train, and you can almost hear the sound of the clickety-clack of the rails as that train moves across the great state of Texas. You can hear the conductor as he calls out the stations along the way, and finally, as this anticipation grows to almost climactic proportions, the conductor finally calls out the name of that young man's hometown. But as the the train approaches town, the young man puts his hands over his eyes because he cannot bear to look. But as they round that final bend, the apple tree comes into view. Out of necessity, he drops his hands to his side and he opens his eyes. And there isn't one single rag in the old apple tree. There's a thousand. So afraid had the father been that something would happen to just one rag. In the dead of winter, that old apple tree blossomed hundreds of white rags. He wanted his son to know clearly that he was forgiven, that he was wanted back, and that the father-son relationship was restored. And that's God's message to you and me and to every prodigal in Luke chapter 15. What a wonderful day when the prodigal comes home. But it must be your and my decision. I just wanted you to know what God's response would be when and if you make that decision. 
The old gospel hymn says this, I've wandered far away from God, now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod, Lord, I'm coming home, coming home, coming home, never more to roam, open wide thine arms of love, Lord, I'm coming home. And if you need to come home this morning, do it now, while we stand, while we sing. Softly and tender.